Hi, and welcome to the Farcast. I'm Alex Helmbrecht, and I'm joined here today with my co-host Daniel Binkard and our guest, Associate Professor in the Health, uh, Physical Education, and Recreation Department, Brian Dorrell. Welcome. Thank you, gentlemen. Hopefully you I got your name me. right. You did. Okay, good, perfect. good. Perfect. I'm one for one. I'm just going to call you Brian now. So this is great. Perfect. Thank you. you. Got it. That's easy enough to pronounce. Uh, so thanks for joining us today, Brian. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you... Uh, what where did life kind of take you before you wound up here at Shattern State? And then um, maybe where'd you go to college? Stuff like that. Um, I was born and grew up in a town in northwest Missouri called Maryville. So it's a it's a town a little bit bigger than Shadron, but very similar. Uh, we have a, uh, a state college there as well and a uh, Division II school athletically as far as competition level and things like that. Um, but grew up in Maryville and... Uh, Went to college there, did my undergraduate there, and uh, received a degree in physical education and health with teaching certificate. Um, at that time, you know, I'm an athletic trainer as well, and at that time, the athletic training, you know, world has changed drastically. But back then, it was an internship route, so we would major in. You could major in anything. You could be a history major as long as you basically took a minor in okay. athletic training kind of thing. So in addition to that, those series of classes that we took, a lot of them fell under physical education. So a lot of us would do either, you know, pre-med, pre-physical therapy or, or, or physical education and health because a lot of the courses crossed over, whether they were anatomy and exercise science, things like that. But we had to work a lot of hours of internship. So, you know, in addition to the physical education and the health, you know, I worked as a student athletic trainer for four years and accumulated a lot of hours of internship at Northwest as well. So. A lot of drive time probably. Oh, I'm my sure. gosh. We spent a lot of time on buses and, uh, gosh, been over the United States. And it was a, it was a really great experience. It was a lot of work. But, you, I mean, you guys travel with athletics too at different times. Yeah. And you know what it's like to – do all these road trips, but uh, that was the way we used to learn back then. It was a lot more hands-on training rather right. than the textbook situation. So uh, anyway, I went to Northwest, and uh, after I graduated there, I, I went to uh, grad school at Northern State University in Aberdeen, South Dakota. Sure. Again, it's a very yeah. similar-sized school. Yep. And, um, Northern was a—I mean, I lived in Northern in the— Worst winter in recorded history of South Dakota. So I got a double experience. That must I could, be saying something too. Oh, it was wild. Yeah. It was. It was the first time. I mean, it, you know, you hear the term cabin fever, and you know, you hear people joke about it. Well, you realize it's not a joke when you have ten feet of snow and you can't walk outside during the winter. But it right. was quite an experience. So had a great athletic experience up there too, working with. Um, some great coaches. There was uh, our head athletic trainer, Roy Strong, was an amazing mentor to us and uh, worked with like Bob Olson, who was a legendary basketball coach up there, just a wonderful person. And Dr. Crutchman was the athletic director. And anyway, a lot of history, just like Shattern and Northwest and, and some of the other institutions. So is that the is that the institution that had the basketball coach that yeah. lost his leg? Yeah. Or, uh, Meyer. Yeah. That was his last time. I never actually met him, but oh, okay. he was he was after I had left. But yeah, Gene, okay. was it Gene Meyer? I can't Don maybe? Don Meyer, that's correct. Yeah, I never met Coach Meyer. Okay, again, I thought maybe you you had overlapped with him. No, he was after I had left, but he was a long standing, very well respected basketball coach who came in after Coach Olson. Okay. And still continued to have a lot of success up there and stuff. The women's coach, there was a guy named Kurt Fredrickson and um he Again, just dominant in 
in that league. They when they went from NAIA to Division Two NCAA, they didn't miss a beat. Yeah, you know, they yeah. especially in basketball. Mm-hmm. You know, they just and I think they had some building to do in some of their other sports, but it was uh, basketball was just very very dominant there. So, um, so grad school at Northern State University, the Wolves, and um, and that's probably where you met your buddy Josh. That is exactly right? yeah. 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 Josh Ellis, who's on the faculty here. So. Yeah. Uh, I actually met Josh first day I started at Northern and I went And you th- stayed. I did. Yeah. <laughs> we could say that he's a friend of the pod. Yeah, yeah. And he's a good dude. Yeah. And uh it, you know, it's like one of those things sometimes you meet, you know, some of your long long term friends that you've met over the years. I I always think that's funny. I think it's kinda like human characteristics I find really interesting and I find it interesting when, you know, you really mesh with somebody, you know, personality-wise, joke-wise, you know, you have the same sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Well, I can remember to this day when I met him, within 10 minutes, I knew we were going to be close friends. And um, I just, we were just same sense of humor, yeah. same profession, you know, here we are. And uh, kind of a funny story from graduate school, um, Josh and his wife, um they had their first child when they were still in college. So you can imagine, you know, the challenge of, you know, one of them being in grad school, one of them just graduated. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, <laughs> I will never, we still laugh about it. So um, they were, you know, there was some stress, you know, and uh, I, we were, I can't even remember where we were at or how this, you know, I could tell us since something was wrong. I said, is everything okay? He goes, and eh, not really, you know, he was working nights at like, it was like an Applebee's or kind of a place, you know, he's bartending and it was like, you know, surf food and all that stuff. And then his wife was working at a, um, at a department store, like in a women's clothing area and thing like that. But she had worked nights on Thursday nights and on Thursday nights, he was supposed to go there at five o'clock. Well, here they are in grad school. I mean, how much yeah. money, extra money do you have to pay for babysitters? Right. Yeah. And I says, everything. Okay. He goes, no, no, we're having a heck of a time. I said, what's wrong? He said, well, we really can't afford a babysitter and you know, I can't really afford to quit my job. And, and I said, well, you know, what's the scenario, you know, can he said, well, you know, I have to go to work at five and just need somebody to babysit until eight, you know, for, for like three hours till Don gets done. And I said, you know, I said, you know, I have a little sister. We have <laughs> my, I have two brothers. We have, I have three of us boys. And then we had a baby sister. And then I come from a big Irish Catholic family, you know, so you imagine the number of cousins, mm, right? So sure. I, said, I said, I can babysit for three hours, you know, and at that time, Sierra was like, uh, one and a half, you know, she was toddling around and, you know, at that really fun age, you know, where she could hold her own bottle. I didn't have to do too much work, but, you know, Josh was, I think when he proposed it to his wife, <laughs> she was like, what? You know, I said, hey, you need me to babysit, I'll come over. And it pretty much that t- turned into the way that they both kept their jobs for for that time period. So I, his oldest, I babysat for her for probably about a year nice. in grad school. So it was my contract contribution to Josh's education. So he kind of owes me. I <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Probably I saved say. him thousands of dollars <laughs> in babysitting fees. Yeah. Plus, it's like an active age for those kids. They're mm-hmm. moving around all the time. So, you, you know, like yeah. babies are easy. Mm-hmm. You just put mm-hmm. them in the thing and let them mm-hmm. go. But, uh, yeah, yeah. when the kids actually move, that's the game changer. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was kind of funny because it would always be her time to eat. So I'd give her a bottle, and she'd pretty much fall asleep. So it was pretty. Oh, there she you go. was pretty. Yeah, then you'd watch TV. Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's essentially what I did, or do homework yeah, while ba- she slept. So. Babysitting is kind of a scam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're little. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from a guy in your room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, she's all grown up and graduated and everything else. So, uh, but after Northern, I uh, 
my first job was at a community college in Kansas uh, where I was the head athletic trainer. Um, I was only there for two years. Uh, and I went to Baker University in Kansas also. I've kind of been a bit of a journeyman, um, but as you know, in athletics and in college sports, it's often, you know, it's un, it's kind of challenging sometimes. You end up having to move for quality, mm-hmm. you know, for you know better opportunities and money, just like with coaching. Um, went to Baker. Then I was at William Jewell College in Kansas City for quite a while. Um, and... Uh, Side note, you know, besides working as an athletic trainer, I've always been an educator. Um, I've always seen myself as an educator slash athletic trainer. Um, so at Baker and at Jewel, I was teaching, you know, biomechanics and exercise science and care and prevention of athletic injuries and so on and so forth. Uh, at at William Jewel, um, we helped or I helped establish a, the first or I don't think it was a first, but restart their physical education um, education program and their health science program and things like that. So after that, went to Washburn for a couple of years and as the program director for athletic training, and that's when I I really had kind of transitioned over from being a you know practicing athletic trainer at the college level to to really trying to teach it. Mm-hmm. And at Washburn, I really you know I'd really been thinking about getting my doctorate. I just didn't know when. You know, and it was it became really apparent to me at that moment after doing that for a couple of years, a couple of seasons. I was like, all right, this is the time and it's time to go do this. It's time to transition to to academics right now. And um, I simultaneously a former mentor called me and from Northwest uh, where I did my undergrad and um, Terry Robertson and said, uh, hey, we need somebody to teach these classes. You know, I hear you want to work on your doctorate. Why don't you come back to Maryville and. And uh, so I went back to Northwest and I taught anatomy and biomechanics and I've taught research methods. I've taught a lot of different courses like in the health science and and physical education, athletic training backgrounds. So uh, following uh, Northwest, I I took the opportunity to to go down to Texas for a year and to work in an athletic training education program. And uh, then at the University of uh, Colorado in Colorado Springs for as a visiting professor for a year in uh, athletic training as well. So the last one, let's see, the last, you know, five years primarily been focusing a lot on athletic training education stuff. So Nice. Tons of experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so where would you say your, your passion for athletic training came from? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I've always had a drive to help people and um, I've always had a drive to um, improve things. And I've always had a strong drive to um, do the right thing in regard to the education of students and uh, the growth of students. So I, I've always had this drive to, to try to fix things. So I think there's a piece of it there. Uh, we were highly involved with scouts when we were kids, um, Boy Scouts. And, of course, we had a lot of first aid training and you know training like that. Yeah. Uh, I think really what probably you know prompted me to go into athletic training is in high school we were we were very fortunate I don't know of another high school our size that had an athletic trainer but we had a, a a guy named Ed Wagner who was working as a uh, an athletic trainer he was a graduate student out the college and then he would come to the high school and cover our sports and you know I can still remember the first meeting here you're a freshman in high school you know kind of overwhelmed by yeah. your first year playing high school football you know those types of things and 
This guy walks in and introduces himself, tells us his name, and we're like, what's this guy do, you know? And then um, I subsequently sprained an ankle one day, and uh, Ed you know, starts taking care of me, and I was just fascinated by it. I'm like, well, why are you doing that? What are you doing? And yeah. Ed, you'd have to meet Ed to really appreciate his sense of humor, but Ed kind of had a little bit of a – he was a little bit of funny, abrasive kind of humor, you know? And he was like, you know, why don't you shut up and stop asking me so many questions, you know? And he had this East Coast accent, you know. And of course, we would always mock him and, you know, just, you know, razz each other and stuff. And uh, he says, uh, you know, why don't you come out after football and, and help me? If you're so interested in doing this, why don't you come out during baseball season? Well, I, we wrestled in football, our primary sports. But so when, during baseball season, I went out and I was kind of a student manager, but he started teaching me skills, yeah. you know, like – making ice bags and wrapping on ice bags and taping and doing some basic taping. And I just, I fell in love with it right then, you know, and, you know, coming out of high school, I, I knew I want, I was not the most uh, dedicated student in high school. I didn't, I didn't know how to study, you yeah. know, and I, I didn't know it was one of these things that would, it came easy to me, but I didn't, I didn't know it was easy to me. You know what right, I mean? Right, that transition into college. Yeah, yeah, and going into college, I initially started my first semester, you know, going into public relations. And I <laughs> I just remember sitting there one day going, you know, you really want to – I remember having this conversation with myself about, you know, you really want to do medicine of some kind, you know, and uh, why aren't you doing it? And I remember thinking, well, I'm afraid I can't pass anatomy class, you know. <laughs> and it was some, the roadblock, some yeah. barrier there yeah. that I was afraid of the science behind some yeah. of it. And uh, – I remember just sitting there saying, like, well, this is silly. You know, I don't want to pay all this money and then, you know, be miserable in a career that I'm not really into. And that's right. the moment I decided I was going to go do it. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. So great. Yeah, it was probably it was I, most athletic trainers have like have a have a have a fix it mentality. Number one. And number two, most of us have had like some experience with like a sport related injury. It's yeah. just like. Right. Yeah, I mean, people often go into the fields where they get some kind of a, mm -hmm. you know, they've had some kind of experience with it that kind yeah. of, that was positive, you know. Yeah, so. for sure. So uh, part of your responsibilities at CSC is to help mm -hmm. build uh, the Masters in Athletic Training. So what does that work kind of look like? Well, um, so currently for the profession of athletic training, uh, we have transitioned into master's level programs. So to become an athletic trainer, you have to graduate with an undergraduate degree. You apply to a master's program, go through the two years master's program and sit for a national certification exam. So all these nationwide programs have transitioned to the master's level. What we need or what we have to do to establish something like that, first of all, we design a curriculum uh, and we identify uh, the potential for clinical experiences for our students. And that's where we're kind of in, you know, the phase we're in now is, you know, we're trying to determine, you know, once our students, it's easy to teach the classroom stuff. What what really where the, where the students get a lot of their knowledge is working in the field, you know, mm -hmm. with real, seeing real injuries, working with physicians or working with other athletic trainers, um, you know, kind of being supervised by those individuals, getting to see, you know, uh, I, you name it, <laughs> stitches, sure. fractures, you know, yeah. torn ACLs, concussions, 
you know, seeing those experiences and being exposed to them, you know, live and then working through the, the, the process of the diagnosis, the treatment, the rehabilitation and the return to play. So we're in the process of trying to identify clinical sites where the students would potentially be stationed to do their, their different rotations. And in our profession, um, with our academic standards, you know, some of the things that we, we really try to, um, have the students experience or a wide variety of age groups, you know, working with young children, working with geriatrics, not just the call. I mean, we have a tendency to think of athletic trainers and, you know, in colleges or professional yeah. sports, right? But there's a lot of other very diverse populations that athletic trainers are now working with. Our profession has changed drastically in the last 30 years. You know, you see athletic trainers being in the industrial setting. You know, you see athletic trainers working in you know, they refer to it as tactical medicine, and I don't know if I love that that term, but it kind of gives you the misconception it's like combat stuff. That's one piece of it. I mean, you see people working in this setting with firefighters and police officers and in the military, and it's a, kind of the term is kind of a bit of a misnomer. You know, an athletic trainer is not going to be stationed with a group going out and kicking in doors and potentially taking care of gunshot wounds, but what they are taking care of are these situations where – these people who are laden with heavy gear, just like a contact sport athlete, right, yeah. are like a, a firefighter reaching through the window of a car wreck to stabilize someone for 15, 20 minutes. You know, that's a serious strain on your back. These mm-hmm. people, the, the, the injuries, the vast majority of injuries that these, in, these uh, tactical athletes suffer are similar to those of a contact sport athlete so that makes sense yeah yeah knees never ankles, even thought of it yeah yeah, makes yeah sense. knees ankles backs yeah. uh concussion you know with uh anybody who's working you know like police officers any loud things that go bang you know there's a side effect to that and mm-hmm. it's concussive forces and it's noise and it's concussion uh, so on and so forth. So you see athletic trainers now being placed in all these different scenarios, industrial, uh, working in factories where there's big assembly lines where, you know, they're assessing, you know, the biomechanical, um, well, the ergonomics is what the term we use. Like, is it ergonomically correct for this person to to work at this space all day long, right? It, you know, if somebody comes off the the line, you know, if you what do you, you move somebody else over? It's like, it's like a how do you want to say it? these people suffer? They're doing physical things all day long. They suffer the same musculoskeletal conditions that athletes right. do. So you see, we, we try are currently trying to set up you know potential clinical experiences where you know they have a wide range of experiences with age groups and in different different scenarios and part of the it's not just getting them experience it's also exposing them to these different opportunities like well, where do you want to work you yeah. want to be at the college and the high school you want to work at the you know you want to be a stationary you don't want to work with a doctor in their office you know being a physician extender do you want to you know have a you know do rotations at high schools in a big city there's just a lot of opportunities now for athletic yeah. trainers sounds like it and that program's expected to begin? Well, we're hoping to begin next summer. You know, we're hoping okay. to launch. That's that's my goal and our goal. You know, we have several things to accomplish before then that, that, um, that you know, they're, they're very doable. But it's, it's kind of interesting when I, I'm learning this, you know, having, you know, Shadron doesn't have a program like this. And I've never worked somewhere where they didn't have, you know, kind of a precursor program. So... 
installing a medical program is different than some of the other programs that, right. that I have traditionally been involved with. If, if I wanted to start teaching, um, you know, if I wanted to start teaching uh, physical education at a college, you know, we put together the curriculum and then we, you know, look at the accreditation standards for the um, whoever accredits our college and they say yes or no, you're mm -hmm. doing these things. Well, there's just a little bit of a different depth with like a medical program. Yeah. Other places I've been have previously had nursing, respiratory therapy. And so it's just a different flavor. I mean, mm -hmm. you have, not only do you have to have educators, but you have to have people to supervise their experiences clinically. So if, you know, every, all these different medical programs are different, you know, in athletic training, we have traditionally identified opportunities in the public where another professional works and then we station a student with them if they want to mentor them. It's not something anybody has to do, right? It's something that they they kind of have a calling to do. They want to have a, a mini-me running around with them, you know, and yeah. showing them the ropes yeah. and, you know, teaching them the skills and, you know, observing them, you know, you know, monitoring them, having a backup plan, you know, having to be in the backup for them. So... So we have some some things that we're you know things that we're trying to still figure out. I mean, we have several moving pieces. You know, we've got to get a classroom. We've identified a room on campus, and you know, we've got to get that remodeled into a you know a laboratory, like a mock athletic training room with desks in it. And right. We've got to have some space to to do that. We've got to, um, you know, there's a large you know it takes a little bit to get something like this going i mean we have mm -hmm. to purchase all the ultrasound and stim machines we have to you know have whirlpools and and uh all the rehabilitation equipment you know all that stuff so right. we're in the process of getting ready to make a purchase on some of that stuff we've we've done our done our due diligence for the state of nebraska and gotten three bids on all there of our go. equipment yeah <laughs> we're well aware of that yeah stuff. you know yeah. that process yeah. works so yeah so our goal is to start next summer but we've got uh, good We've got some challenges. The big challenge right now is the clinical side. So yeah. um, with, you know, again, we, you know, we have a goal on how many kids we want to carry. So if we want to carry X amount, let's say you want to carry 12 kids per cohort. We have to find enough clinical sites where 12 kids would be appropriately right. mentored and, you know, and observed at that space. So we can't yeah. take 12 kids and stick them with one athletic trainer at the college. Yeah. So be too many. Right. Nice. So in addition to that, uh, what other classes do you teach here? Well, right now I'm just teaching first aid and safety, right okay. across, right across the safety for adult, child, and infant. And we're teaching care and prevention, or I'm teaching care and prevention of athletic injuries right now. So. Okay. I imagine the master's degree prep is keeping you plenty busy aside yeah, from that. <laughs> yeah, when I have, yeah, I mean, it's like we've, you know, again, it's like we're working through these things. It's like, yeah, we have to have a lot of meetings, a lot of conversations. How are we going to do this? Where are we going to do it? And how's it going to happen? And yeah, things like that. Mm -hmm. So um, you've kind of talked about how you, how you knew that you wanted to teach and work in higher ed. But, and you touched on this a little bit about maybe some of the occupational things that athletic trainers do. But talk a little bit about the importance of athletic training. Um, I think a lot of times, or at least how I've been accustomed to seeing athletic trainers, it's they're around when something bad happens. So it's like in a reactionary role. But that's not the mm -hmm. only purpose they serve, right? Talk a little bit about that. <clears throat> no. Uh, I'm, I'm, of course, biased to my <laughs> profession. But athletic trainers, uh, especially, you know, in the traditional college setting, you know, play a vital role in um, 
in the 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 daily operation. You know, you know, college especially. So I'll, I'll reference this from a college standpoint, right? With college athletes, when you have a bunch of highly competitive young people playing games that are very aggressive and sometimes even borderline violent. You know, when you look at a contact sport like mm-hmm. football and soccer, yeah. and I would even argue college basketball, you know, can be very <laughs> yeah, yeah, physical. Sure. At times, yeah. yeah. It's, you know, the athletic trainer plays a role primarily of taking care of the bumps and the bruises and the sprains and the strains, right? But outside of that, there is a large administrative component that goes on. Um, I think if you talk to any college coach, they would tell you it's crucial to have great communication with an athletic trainer. Most college coaches, of course, you know, are always frustrated when especially a great player gets hurt and they don't have them. Uh, but what's more frustrating is when they don't understand where this person is in the process and they don't understand when I can potentially expect them back. So there's a huge administrative component to being an athletic trainer at the college level in the in the communication with the student athlete. <clears throat> you know, maybe that be maybe even being a go between with student athlete and mom and dad. Mm-hmm. You know, um, or the student athlete and the coach, the athletic director, so on and so forth. Uh, we have a big administrative component often of organizing their evaluations you know once we've determined the the injury is beyond my scope it's more than a minor sprain or strain i've got to set up an appointment with an orthopedic surgeon you know or a the appropriate physician to see them right you know we do all kinds of referrals you know we will refer student athletes from everything um, from mental health counseling to nutrition counseling uh, to um Support in different ways. You know, we identify the appropriate medical provider to get them to, whether it's a dermatologist or an orthopedic surgeon. So we have a big administrative component there. We also do lots and lots of record keeping, as you can imagine. Uh, we have to document every injury, and mm-hmm. that is yeah. has multiple you know, reasons behind it, just for our own protection from a legal standpoint, sure. documenting what happened, when, where, uh, but also for an insurance standpoint. You know, we often... Yeah. Um, most college, I'm not sure what Shadron does, but I'm assuming it's like, you know, most other universities and colleges where, you know, the student athletes are often asked to carry a primary policy. The mm-hmm. school carries a secondary, so we have to be able to document the injuries and for billing, you know, right. things like that. So, I'm curious, how much do athletic trainers need to know or be aware of HIPAA? Oh. Uh, and the regulations with that. So, if, say yeah. you're an athletic trainer here. Mm-hmm. I'm the coach. Daniel's mm-hmm. my star running back. Mm-hmm. He tears his ACL during mm-hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. How are you able to tell me? I'm not his guardian. I'm not mm-hmm. his parent. <clears throat> well, how does all that stuff? Work? Well, we we have waivers. We ask the student athletes to sign okay HIPAA waivers. You know, so you know where where there's limitations on the communication about their private information, right? Yeah. So if you're going to be a student athlete for Shadron State football team, you know, the coach has the right to understand where you are in the injury process, you know. Sure. And there may be times where there are details withheld, right? Like if if we have a student athlete who let's just say has a mental health um, challenge and that is something sensitive to them that they may not want all the specifics known, right? You don't have to tell a coach every detail about what may be causing the athlete to feel right. challenged. They just need to know that, you know, it's a mental health challenge and, you know, the athlete's being referred and here's the recommendation from the medical provider on their status right now. Mm-hmm. You know, full go, limited, or right. no go, you know. And so most student, occasionally, I've rarely 
had an experience where a student athlete had, you know, <clears throat> had some concerns about the HIPAA thing, you know, in regard to the communication between, you know, the athletic trainer, the coach and themselves, mm-hmm. you know, I've had, I've had more of a FERPA situation, honestly, where yeah, a student athlete didn't want, you know, academic information, you know, being shared with third parties such as parents, you know, which yeah. can be very challenging, especially when mom and dad <laughs> maybe helping financially. And you've yeah. Got, it's like, yeah, interesting Man, you, balance. You that's talk a, to your son. <laughs> that's an A and B conversation, yep. and you yep. see yourself out of it. Yeah, yep. yep. So yeah, no, that's just, interesting. I, yeah. I've always felt that you know mm-hmm. those the supportive entities that are around mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. athletic teams, mm-hmm. whether that's trainers or. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, statisticians, mm-hmm. whatever, filmers mm-hmm. are always kind of a, a, a natural, they serve as like a natural bridge. Mm-hmm. And if the communication is good, it seems like the team is more successful. Oh, it's, well, it's interesting how yeah. it kind of, it's like an amoeba. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's no doubt. And I mean, I think the most successful athletic teams that I've ever worked with, um, uh, not to pat athletic trainers and myself on the back, but. <laughs> You know, we, you know, in those moments, you know, we were seen as this will not work without you, Yeah. you know, and it was, yeah. it was in a, in a perfect flow situation. What, it, what it looks like is, you know, if you think about the course of a, a football season, you know, 10, 11 games, 12, 13, if you go into the playoffs, right, you're going to have injuries. Oh yeah. There's no question about it. So it's like. There's the early injuries, the mid-season injuries, and the post, you know, the late-season injuries, and you constantly have this situation going on where kids are undergoing rehabilitation, um, returning to play, trying to get back as soon as possible, while other kids are, you know, unfortunately going down, you know, with those next games. Yep. So it's every just, stage, yeah, it's this cycle of of. You know, I've had a lot of conversations with college football players. You know, they become very frustrated. I'm so hurt. Like, listen, you have to expect to get hurt. Or that kid who's sitting second on the depth chart who acts like they're disinterested or, or you know, I should be starting. Well, you better pay attention because you're going to be, most likely. <laughs> yeah. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And yep. it's like they don't think about it like that. And it's like in the college, this 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 ebb and flow of the of the depth chart and who's ready to go. Well, what is vital to or how athletic trainers can very much help the success of a team is being able to, number one, communicate to the coaches, but number two, being able to facilitate an expedited process, especially with like working closely with a hospital or a surgeon to get x-rays, MRIs at, a, at, a, at an expedited, expedited rate so we can get the information. And coaches, in my experience, you know, of course, nobody wants to see a kid get hurt. But, you know, when it, when they know the kid is hurt, it, the question is, well, how long will they be out? Right. Do I got to get my third string guy through two or three games? You know, do we got to pay attention and mentor and mm-hmm. really work with this kid closely? Or, you know, and then I'm going to get my first string kid back at this point, you know, where I can now kind of takes a load off that, that stress. Yeah. Or that. So, I mean, coaches will – you know, plan their games around, Sure. you know, who's where. I mean, if you have a dominant offensive player to skill position and they're going to be gone for the next two games, you know, let's say at wide receiver or your quarterback goes down and your second string quarterback's not quite the thrower, you know, they're going to game plan. The domino you know, effect. Yeah, they're going to have an offensive scheme that's going to, you know, 
highlight who who's their 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 strong tools are on the field. So, mm-hmm. from from an administrative standpoint, you know, I've I've been in some wonderful situations where they're a little bit high stress, but you also feel very crucial, and it's always about communication with the coaches, and it's always about doing the best we can to to expedite these processes. That's the that's frustrating for kids, for parents, and for coaches when, you know, a, let's say you're the only athletic trainer at a at a large school and you got 300 athletes, it's impossible to care for them. You know, it's impossible to, to really get good communication and the kids getting taken care of. So, you know, it, during a call, you know, there's a limited number of contests, you know, kids spend their entire year and sometimes lots of their life prepping for these moments. And then to have an injury and then be sitting there in limbo and not knowing what's happening or how long it's going to take that, that is when it gets very, disheartening for everybody mm-hmm. you know mom dad everybody coach everybody so oh yeah so in the course of your time um, working with all this so what are some of the big changes that you've seen and what are the what are the notable changes in the field oh wow yeah that's a great question too and i was just talking about this in class yesterday so uh, I, I mean there's been huge advancements in in regard to um, how we manage different injuries. And I think one of the easiest examples is like an ACL tear. You know, 25 years ago, college, maybe longer, I'm, you know, yeah, we used to, you'd have a kid tear an ACL, and the standard protocol was to put them in a knee immobilizer, straight leg knee immobilizer, which is essentially like a cast, right? right? And we now know, you know, well, atrophy and neuromuscular changes occur within 24 to 48 hours. Okay. Right. Well, the thought process back then was like, well, they've torn their ACL, the knee's unstable, we better protect them. We now know, as long as they're not twisting, planting, pivoting, uh, they may feel a little bit of instability, but they're still going to respond much better than if we immobilize them for, for right. you know, three or four weeks before their surgery. You know, it's, that's almost like you're almost giving them, like, I don't even know. It, I mean, it's a, it's a, I don't know the terminology I'm looking for. It was so detrimental to them returning. Well, it sounds like a delay in recovery. And that is, the, thank you. That's the way to say it: a delayed recovery okay. because of, of the the philosophy was to protect versus we now have this terminology or this this idea that we prehab people before they go into surgery. Yeah, it's much more aggressive. You know, as long as we're not doing further damage, right? Just keep that blood flowing. <laughs> yeah, keep the blood flowing. Keep the muscles. You know, keep the range of motion full. Yeah. Keep the, the keep them strong as possible, and they recover much more quickly. So, you know, back then you again we would do this immobilization, we would have surgery. I mean, it would be a year process, and now you're seeing people, students return to, to. Within five months, you know, they're back oh, to doing great. the, the yeah. level of conditioning. They may not be perfectly ready to be a college-level athlete again, but they're they're at that place where they can absolutely do very aggressive, you know, speed, power, strength training. Uh, that's, uh, yeah. that's, that's probably one. Concussion's another big area that's changed drastically. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I again, I'm older than you guys, but I can remember getting knocked out in a football game on a kickoff return and, you know, Everybody laughing. Dust it off. Oh, Everybody yeah, laughing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you got your bell ringing and running off the sideline. Right. How many fingers am I holding up? That whole deal. All right, get back in there. You know, and as, uh, you know, things have just changed drastically. You know, we did not understand the implications for, you know, traumatic brain injury. We did not understand. Uh, we knew some of the signs and symptoms. You know, we knew that you could yeah. sustain blurred vision or become unconscious and have some confusion, loss of balance, and things like that. But now, you know, 
the field has just absolutely changed in, you know, first of all, the diagnostics of it, you know, yeah. having pre and post tests so that if we suspect you have a concussion, we have these set of numbers that you've demonstrated in a healthy environment that, that we now can check your numbers again, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, and uh, just the, the long-term implications for concussions have now, of course, right. become oh, you yeah. know, at the forefront and trying to prevent these things. And, well, yeah. I wonder if that, that, you know, does, does has mental health come more into the front in, in you know, the dec- these few decades? Yeah, I think it has for sure. And I think w- we had this conversation the other day about, you know, is it, <clears throat> is it, are there more mental health issues or is it just becoming more and more yeah. socially acceptable? Right. You know, and... So I think it's all the above, you know, and I think that the society has become totally my opinion. I have no evidence to back this up. It's just my anecdotal observation, you know. I feel like as society becomes more and more complex, you know, we have these these different things that happen, such as the advent of these these tools that we use. We have these computers in our pockets now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are very, very distracting. And we've seen a sharp incline of mental health, diagnosed mental health conditions that interestingly coincide with the advent and the use, the social, use media of social media yeah. stuff. So um, it's it's interesting, you know, is that is that, you know, causing it or is it just kind of unlock it? You know, is it like oh, we, yeah. we all have these possibilities of these mental health challenges, um, you know, whether it's like I'm looking at social media and comparing myself. Well, am I as handsome as... Right. Is that guy with a full head of hair since we were talking about that before? <laughs> you know, whatever. You know, be it, it people have a tendency to, I think to wanna, you know, compare themselves yeah. to everybody else. Yeah. So within athletics and students in general, I think there is an increase in mental health, number one. I think it's also very, very um, it's very much a true story that it's becoming less socially stigmatized, right. you know, which has always been fascinating to me from a standpoint of, you know, it's always been very perplexing to me that, that we would stigmatize, you know, this idea that someone would have a mental health challenge. You know, we, it, every day, one of those kids over there has a sinus infection, right? Yeah. And we don't. There's really no stigma about there's that. No, there's no stigma with sinus infection. And, yeah. you know, your sinuses are essentially hollow spaces in your skull lined with a membrane. Mm-hmm. Like when they, a, uh, you know, some kind of a, a virus or infection, you know, inflames them and you have a runny nose. Yeah. Yet. When we think about this bundle of billions of neurons that are... Oh, that's supposed to just work perfectly all the time, right? Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's responsible for gathering all your sensory information and processing it and making, you know, your brain's going to be responsible for moving you and for your ability to communicate. And yeah. mm-hmm. we have these chemicals that get released by what we see, hear, or do, or smell, right? And it's much, much more complex than your sinuses, but yet we stigmatize the most complex yeah. function in your body. And that's... Because that it's not understood. Bingo. Yeah. That is exactly right. It's yeah. not understood. You know, we... It's alarming. Like, one of the things that that I became really interested in during my doctorate, and I guess what was alarming to me is like how when you're finding out how it was optimistically depressing because while you're <laughs> There's gaining... There's so much more still to be done. Oh my gosh. Sounds like an oxymoron. We're making progress at <laughs> it least. Is, it yeah. is. Like you're learning all this information and I just, I remember sitting there one night writing a paper and I was just like, 
oh my God, we don't really know anything about this. Yeah. And so as I'm trying to discover this, I'm like, you know, reading different pieces of research and I'm like, oh my God, we don't know anything about this. Yeah. And I finally had to quit looking at this because you realize what we don't know. Yeah. And for all of the things that we see, like the concussion thing, all the, the knowledge that we've learned, yeah. you know, I mean, we're talking within the last 20 years, yeah. this has happened, you know, yeah. I can remember the first textbook where they finally published, you know, these ideas of like, well, we're going to grade your concussion. You know, we're going we're, to, we're, once we're sure that you've sustained a concussion, we're going to try to put a grade on it. Is it a one, two, or a three? And right. that was like monumental. Like this was the, what? We can, there's differences between a first and a second degree. <laughs> and they've kind of done away with that now. They've no, you, you know, just, okay. it's much more, it's much more difficult to diagnose Ever evolving, the, yeah, yeah. That's a great way to say mm -hmm. it too. It's a, it's an evolving process. You know, one person could have a minor bump that causes them problems for weeks. You have another person getting knocked unconscious for thirty seconds and they feel normal within right. three or four days. Yeah, you know, so yeah. Anyway. Oh, I, I, I answered your question about the with the mental health side. No, of no, yeah. I, th I think it's fascinating. Yeah, and well, how that keeps evolving. Yeah, and I mean, anecdotally, again. Um, you know, I talked to the students about this. You know, we were looking at some of the stats the other day. We I just taught us a chapter on psychosocial. And um, it's interesting with college kids who are sustaining or having, you know, a mental health challenge. You know, we often will socially display things, you know, whether yeah. it's like my irritability level and I'm snapping at everybody or, you know, college kids will do reckless things. You know, they'll right. drive poorly or, you know, use drugs and drink alcohol and, and yep. things like that. Well, all, a lot of humans do, but um, it, but it's it's really interesting to have that conversation with them. And you know, they first kind of you can see light bulbs going off, like, oh yeah, I may I may have witnessed this at some time yeah. with somebody. But then when you you look at all these stats of like uh, the volume of like college age kids who are reporting some kind of mental health challenge, and you know, did when I was in college, you know, were those there? They just weren't. You mm -hmm. know, they just weren't. We couldn't put a name to some of them, or mm -hmm. we just weren't mm -hmm. weren't uh, conditioned mm -hmm. to to look. Yeah, whatever it would mm -hmm. be, all that combination. Yeah, yeah. It's like you don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, it's I feel bad. bad. Why? Yeah, yeah it's yeah, kind exactly. Of, yeah. yeah, yeah. Someone would isolate themselves and sit in their room, not do things socially. Well, yeah. why not? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't remember one person saying they had social anxiety when when I was in college. Yeah, you know, so. You know, are there more of these things or have has our society kind of created more of these things within our, our own kids? And it's an interesting it's an yeah. interesting question. You know, yeah, it's it a, it's a it's your you know, it's a true story. I think that there are more of these mental health things or I think they've always been here, I should say. Yeah. And I think it's also a true story that sometimes when we we focus on them, you know, it, it turns into um it, it almost gives sometimes people kind of take that as an excuse. Well, I don't have to get up and function today because I don't feel good. Well, every one of us in this room knows there's days you don't feel good. You get up and you function, right? You yeah. fight through it and you take care of yourself the best you can. So it's this, it's this, this, this complex arrangement of teaching students these things. Show and what we don't do is really show them a lot of strategies to to handle right. these things. Well, it'll be interesting. I mean, ten years from now, yeah. even twenty years from now, um, you know what we'll have in the toolbox to be able to help people. Yeah, and, you know, help help them, and then they can help themselves too in different mm -hmm. ways. And yeah. you know, just mm -hmm. always more to learn. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. It's what tools do we give them and how do we teach them? So anyway, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing we're kind of going through right yeah. now. So yeah, certainly more changes to come. Mm -hmm. Well, we've reached that point where we have some quick hitting questions. So we'll have some easy ones for some you. Some top okay. of mind stuff to you. Okay. What's a favorite movie of yours? Well, that's a tough question. I think <laughs> not an absolute. You know, what's, what's one of them on the list? <laughs> um, I watch. Uh, you know, I think of movies I've watched repeatedly in my life. Um, Cast Away with Tom Hanks when that's he's stuck one. on the island. Yeah. I think that's oh, a great movie. About very very rewatchable. I, I, I think about yeah. you know just bits mm -hmm. and pieces from that. Yeah, maybe not certainly not on a daily basis, but every so often I'll come back to oh yeah, well, what would I do if <laughs> that, I, that 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 rotten tooth? <laughs> yeah, and it's oh like, my gosh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> knocks it out with the, I, the skate, the ice skate. <laughs> I, I love that movie from the standpoint of like the. Uh, the uh, resiliency of like the human spirit yeah. with the mental health thing that we were just talking about. I love the part where he's talking to the volleyball and yeah, he has this conversation and you, you figure out that you're like, Oh, he's talking to a volleyball, but then he acknowledges that he knows it's yeah. crazy. You know, that he knows. It seems like I read something where the, you know, a psychologist was going, yeah, that, that was a good mm -hmm. coping strategy. Yeah. 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 He'd, yeah. He'd be a little bit more sane. I said, <laughs> how many years, wasn't it only like three years? That he was supposedly yeah. on the island. I can't remember more than that. I can't remember. I always felt like his fiance moved on just a touch too quick. <laughs> he was there several years. Oh yeah, yeah. We got to look. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so <laughs> he was obligated to wait for five to seven or something. And then, like, I feel bad. You know, like they have yeah. a makeout session in yeah. the garage or whatever. Like, what if her husband comes <laughs> in? He's like, what is going on? Well, it's I, a you different know, scenario. Yeah. Than that, I mean, you know? that's kind of an interesting situation too because it was like. I don't know. I'm, it was I'm not a 90s. movie critic. Yeah. Well, it was just. I was just thinking about it from the standpoint of like, you know, it's what kept him alive. Like thinking that she's. Yes. Yeah. She's yeah, there. Yeah. The, like, the idea. Yes. Yeah. It's a pretty cool movie. It's it one, is. Yeah. It's a good one. Very what, good. What is a hidden talent of yours? Mm. Well, I don't know if it's talent. Well, I, I hope to find out one of these days. I, I I like to play guitar and write music, and All I, right. I hope to get something published one of these days. And, awesome. Uh, I guess we'll find out if it's talent if anybody likes the songs. So I, I, one of the, I've always had this on my bucket list to to publish some music. So I do enjoy writing in my free time, and um, that would probably be my hidden talent. That's great. That's yeah. a good one. What's the best advice uh, you received as a college student? And I think we clarified this last time. It doesn't necessarily have to have been from a professor, even. But just yeah, mm -hmm. in that time of your mm -hmm. life. I don't recall like one piece of advice, but I I recall a moment when um, I was walking down a hall, and uh, one of my mentors, uh, a guy named Dr. Jim Red, he was Dr. Red was uh, he had been the head football coach at Northwest Missouri State University, and then Dr. Red had moved into becoming a professor, and then later became the athletic director, um, and you know, really guided them to a lot of their success. But uh, I just remember, you know, walking down the hall one day and in high school, you know, how do I want to say it? I, I had a bit of a notorious, like, I think I had a little bit of a, I had a little bit of a unruly streak in high school. And, you know, it's kind of like you're going through these growing phases, you know, and I just remember walking down the hall and Dr. Red was just this huge man. And I heard this booming voice, you know, Doral, 
And I thought, oh, my God, what did I do already? You know, why is Dr. Red? And he's one of these people that when you're standing next to him, you know, and I walk into his office and he's, he looks at me and he goes, so starts questioning, you know, how's it going? You know, what am I majoring in? You know, what am I, you know, what am I doing? He took interest in me. And then as I'm getting ready to leave, he says, well, now, you know, if you need anything, you just, you just need to ask me. Okay, come by my office anytime. And it was just this tr- tremendous, um, uh, gosh, just it was just this tremendous like moment of like somebody here cares about you, mm-hmm. you know. And it was a, uh, I don't know, it was just very impactful, yeah. you know. And I, I would die for that guy, you know, to this day. And that's great. He is just he's. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. just this bond that you know you establish with different people by mentoring them through yeah. through their undergraduate degrees and helping them find their who they're going to be. I later worked for Dr. Reddy. Later hired me as one of his head athletic trainers at, at William Jewell College, and he and I still talk frequently. And just a wonderful human being. So, That's great. Yeah. Uh, what is a favorite book or favorite author? I don't have one particular favorite book. Um, I I like to read about esoteric things and spirituality and I like to read I like to really read about like these unknown things I like to read <laughs> I like to read about uh, uh, archaeology oh, spirituality yeah. I, I love to read about Egypt oh, and yeah. like the the history of the pyramids and all these kinds of things. Hmm. So I don't have one particular author, but I'm really fascinated by kind of the esoteric side of things and sp- spirituality and, you know, the what ifs and maybe wide range. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so usually we have a kind of a standard question, but I just thought of a fun one. Um, since you mentioned some time eras, mm-hmm. if you could choose to be an athletic trainer at any period in time of human history, mm-hmm. what, what period would you choose? Now, um, honestly, because our our profession has really evolved so much. You know, it, when the first athletic trainers, I mean, the profession of athletic training really didn't start until right after World War II. And the first athletic trainers were really kind of jack-of-all-trades where they were kind of the equipment managers. Yeah. Sometimes they were coaches. Sometimes they were a coach who just knew how to tape ankles, and then it manifested or, or transitioned into this medical provider. And, you know, it's a really cool thing. You know, in this day and age, you know, we are we are medical providers. We are licensed medical providers. And we are um, we in different scenarios, you know, we have to receive registration or licensure to practice within a state. You know, the average person can't just go say, I'm an athletic trainer and and start pretending to do these things. Right. And the academic requirements, I mean, even what we're teaching today to students, I mean, 30 years ago, it was it was un heard of. I mean, we're teaching students, um, you know, it's not unusual now for students to leave a master's program and have, you know, gotten certified to be able to do, you know, you know, have experience with IVs, you know, you know, doing things yeah. like this, IV therapy, you know, in situations where a kid is having heat cramps, um, the okay. concussion situation, yeah. much more advancement in like the knowledge of rehabilitation and diagnostics. I mean, we're learning how to use tools like diagnostic ultrasound where you can take this device and use your phone to get a, an image and determine if someone has a, you know, tear of a, of a structure. You know, yeah, I mean, that is great. Oh, it's it's night and day. A game changer. You know? I mean, back then it was just is that right? Hurt? Yeah, does that hurt? You know, there was just no depth to it. You know, and and we really kind of piggybacked off of, you know, our profession's different from we're a combination of different things. You know, we're 
we have aspects of physical therapy, but we're not physical therapists. You know, we're very much like a physical therapist crossed with an EMT who has to know how to do life-saving medicine and and yeah. emergency skills. And so I, I think right now, long long story short, I think this is the best time to be an athletic trainer. The profession's changing drastically. Uh, salaries are changing drastically. Um, more and more profession, more and more other you know. Um, organizations or, or businesses are seeing the value in having an athletic trainer on staff. So, Good. The time is right. The time is right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Brian. We really appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you.